Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Why does Mark associate prophetic concepts of abundance with the commandment to take up the cross? In what way do popular concepts of carrying the cross associated with hardship fall short of the commandment's meaning? How does the crucifixion in Mark test our trust in God's generosity? This week's episode is in memory of Father Thomas Hopko. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 61 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So, Richard, you had some thoughts about the gospel this weekend, which was for the exaltation of the cross. And to clarify for our listeners, we are referring to chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark. When you hear oftentimes, take up your cross, pick up your cross, it's the cross I bear, that sort of thing. The way people popularly use this is as an image of something hard to do. Oh, you know, my kids, they have very strong personalities. It's the cross I bear. You know, this is the kind of way that people talk about what it means to pick up your cross. It's something heavy. Or the classic first world problem. I fell out of love with my spouse. It's my cross to bear. Right. Or my spouse doesn't love me. I mean, we invent crises that pertain to our inability to deal with personalities or to submit to personalities. And then we co-opt this language of the cross, and it's very disappointing. Right, and it's funny because when Jesus is talking about picking up your cross, he's not saying, you know, accept your crisis. That's not what he's saying. It's not marriage counseling. (laughs) It's not marriage counseling. (laughs) When we were talking earlier about it, I said, you know, there's a difference between carrying something heavy and carrying a cross. He doesn't say, pick up your cinder block and follow me. He says, pick up your cross. And there's a significance of the cross in that this is the means of execution. Pick up your means of execution and follow me. Post-conviction. Exactly. The only time that you would be carrying a cross in the Roman Empire is if you'd already been arrested, already been convicted, already had a punishment imposed upon you. A sentence, a judgment. Yeah, once you've had your sentence, then you pick up your cross. And once you pick up your cross... You have a very limited amount of time to live left. You're picking up your cross and you carry it, oh, up there to the top of the hill, and that is the end of your life, up there at the top of the hill. When you're picking up your cross, you're not saying, oh, I have to do something hard. You have to say, I'm almost dead. Well, and I think that this attitude in popular Christian culture, that picking up your cross is akin to striving or struggling to move forward to achieve some end, I think it's a betrayal of the entire movement of the gospel, which is to strip the human being of initiative, not to bless them for their initiative. I like how you put it, Father. It's not the striving towards a goal. It's the end of all striving. The goal is up there at the top of the hill, and it's death. It's it's failure. And it's humiliating death, it's failure, and it's conviction. And so this is 
what it means to pick up your cross. And this is understood in the passage because right before this is when Peter doesn't want Jesus to go pick up his cross. He doesn't want Jesus to be crucified, and he rebukes him. Now, let me back up for a minute because I think there's something important going on over the course of this chapter that really informs why Jesus is talking about this now. The disciples are really causing a lot of problems in this passage, actually. They show time and time again that they don't get it in this short chapter. So the thing that happens here is that the disciples don't understand that God the Father is always providing. Whatever you're doing, God is providing. He may withhold for a moment, but then he provides again. And that it's all about understanding this teaching, which is that the human being always lives with what he needs until he dies. This is the basic teaching of Torah. And this is what we have all the way from Genesis 1. God created a garden so that the people would have everything they needed to eat everything they needed to drink, and the animals were there to help them. They had nothing to worry about. This is the way that the world was supposed to be set up. But because the human being thought, hmm, there's a tree over there that looks very tasty, and I would like to know about good and evil, therefore I'm going to eat that. Even though I have everything I need already, there is no good or evil, but I want good and evil, and I want that tasty fruit. And so the human being doesn't understand that God is constantly providing everything for humans all the time. There is no need for worry. There is no need for fear because one always has what one needs. Okay, now someone's going to say, well, what can you say about people living in drought in the Horn of Africa and this sort of thing? They're living without. But are they living without because God is withholding or because the rich human beings around them are withholding? From the point of view of those people, they have to say God is withholding and We have to assume still that God is going to give us what we need. This is the assumption you have to have with the gospel. But at the same time, there's a judgment on those rich people in the Horn of Africa who are living large with their fountains in front of their houses, wasting these resources. Well, you have to always remember, and I want our listeners to keep this always in mind when you're dealing with scriptural metaphor, it's not a description of the physical world. The Bible is not in the school or the genre of the physical sciences. It's in the school of behavioral science. So when scripture presents such a metaphor, it's not dealing with whether or not there's enough. It's dealing with the dynamics of human behavior as they pertain to the problem of scarcity. Because the fact is, people living in poverty, because their situation forces them to accept what they can't control, very often are much happier and healthier psychologically and in their relationships and in their communities than we are in the West. And anyone who's traveled to a second world or a third world country, I hate those categorizations, but they're terms of convenience, to a country that hasn't benefited from the abundance of Western industrial wealth, they often and regularly discover that people over there have stronger families, tighter communities, and are just generally happier. They have healthier relationships with their children. Their children have much less behavioral issues than ours do. How that makes sense, I think, has a lot to do with what you're touching on here in Genesis. The reason why I bring up scarcity is because scarcity creates a fear response in human beings. And when there's this fear response in human beings, that's when they tend to go crazy. And that's when they tend to oppress others. That's the beginning of all the evil deeds that humans perform is this fear that something bad is going to happen. And so I think it's important that the passage in this chapter that precedes the cross speech that Jesus makes is about the loaves. And when their multitude is out in the desert, 
the first thing the disciples say is, that, what are they going to eat? Jesus, we don't know what they're going to eat. You know, they're having a crisis because, well, how are they going to have enough? How can God provide food in the wilderness, Jesus? Which is ironic because they're disciples and supposedly students of Torah. Can God provide food in the wilderness? Well, yeah, actually he did after the Exodus. Like, we know he can do this. But they forgot. They don't know. So Jesus says, okay, what bread do you have? Okay, whatever bread you have, it's enough for everybody. Whatever food is there is enough for everybody. Don't worry about it. Oh, wow, how they do this? And they even had leftovers. So then later on, Jesus warns them, don't accept the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think, oh, he's talking about bread, meaning, oh, we're not supposed to take their bread. You know, we only take the Jesus bread. And he's like, that's not what I'm talking about. The problem is that Jesus provides you all the bread you need because of his teaching. So why then would you entertain the teaching of the Pharisees, you know, because the teaching of the Pharisees leads to insiders and outsiders. And why do you have insiders and outsiders? Because we don't want to share what we know we have. We don't want to share what God has with those on the outside. So therefore, we cut a division. Those on the outside, sorry, God doesn't care about you. God can't really help you until you're willing to become one of the insiders. And once you're on the inside, we'll keep track of you to make sure that you're still okay, that you're still one of the insiders, because we only have limited resources in here. We can't just give everything to everybody. God isn't just going to give everything to everybody. That would mean the end of our community. That would be the end of the community. But Father Mark, the gospel you're preaching undermines our gathering as church. Well, yes, it does. This because what... because the, the proposition of the gospel is that God came for the sake of the entire world, not for the sake of you. And by signing up for this, you're committing to that cause for the life of the world at your own expense. So why are you defending your group? And as you well know, Father, the whole dispute with Peter in Galatians is that, oh, will God be able to show his grace on people who aren't circumcised? This is the big question. The answer is, of course. Why wouldn't he be able to? But the big question is a big lie and a self-delusion for the insiders because the gospel exposes their actual intent. Whatever they tell themselves so they can sleep at night is a different matter. Mm -hmm. But their functional intent, their behavioral intent, is to increase their stature and to magnify the importance of their inner circle. That's why Paul makes fun of them when he calls them the pillars and those of repute. So, I mean, it's clearly the dynamic in Mark. I mean, that's another discussion. I mean, right. the polemic against the Pharisees corresponds to the polemic against the pillars in Jerusalem. Well, and here, Jesus is using the polemic against the Pharisees as a jumping off point to get on the disciples' case, saying, you're still trying to figure out the bread. The bread is a given. The point is, is that there's enough for everybody. If you believe there's enough for everybody, the Pharisees then become irrelevant. Their teaching no longer functions. So if you understand that the bread means that God provides for everyone, even in the wilderness, then why would you take this teaching seriously that would say that there's only a certain amount, a finite amount, and we can only serve a certain amount of people so much before we run out? He's like, you know, it's like, I'm God. <laughs> I'm God. It's not going to run out. <laughs> I mean, come on. But can't you show us your record-keeping books, Lord? Well, we need proof that you're keeping books correctly so we can see how much you have stored up for us. And this is interesting because that's what he critiques the people saying, there shall be no sign given unto this generation. I think we, we should hire an outside consultant to audit God. <laughs> well, this is <laughs> exactly. You know, it's like, well, we want to just be sure. It's like, 
you just received the bread in the wilderness. What do you want? What more do you want? And, you know, he goes on. Having seas, see you not? And having ears, hear you not? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves among the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? Twelve. And when the seven among 4,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? Seven. <laughs> and he said to them, how do you not understand? <laughs> Literally, that's verse 21. And he said unto them, how is it that ye do not understand? How can you not understand? I did it twice. I showed that there's enough for everybody, even in the wilderness. And you know, Exodus did the same thing. Yeah. How do you not understand? This is why I struggle with Western concepts of what they call stewardship in the churches, because I often hear people say, well... If people knew, Father, what their money was going to, it might change their giving habits. And I said, if that's the case, I don't want their money for the church because it's condemning them. I have seen people in my tenure as a priest give large sums of money or make tremendous sacrifices for others, not necessarily for the community directly, like in terms of giving to the church, but just made a sacrifice for others in the community. And the force and the power of those offerings when they come is that they are given with the attitude and the spirit that I'm giving this to God. It's none of my business what happens with this because it doesn't belong to me. That attitude of giving corresponds to the generosity of God the Father in the story of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. here. Right. And, you know, you could get an accountant and you say, okay, five loaves will feed 5,000. So one one thousandth of a loaf per person then leaves in another. Okay. So as long as we have for every person, one one thousandth of a loaf will be fine. That's how the a human being then will try to predict. Okay. So if we run into this situation again, Jesus, and we're out in the desert and we have 5,000 people, if we have five loaves, we'll be okay, right? Completely missing the point. It's not about how many loaves you started with. It's that God can provide out of nothing. That's the point. You know, you say, oh, as long as I give 10%, I'm good. No, you have been given everything out of nothing. And so you have to give everything unto nothing for you. I mean, you have to have that spirit. I mean, the bottom line is that giving and receiving in Scripture is a zero-sum game. Everything is on the line. And everything is a test as to whether or not you really trust that the one who provided the loaves and the fishes can provide everything. And that trust has to be so complete that it would lead you to this discussion of what the cross really is in Mark chapter 8. After this, we have the episode with the blind man who, when Jesus puts the thing on his eyes, he can kind of see but not quite see. And then he has to do it again so he can really see. And I find this very funny Because Jesus has fed the multitude in the wilderness twice before he finally has this discussion of, like, how do you not understand? And the blind man gets healed twice, so to speak, before he can understand, before he can see again. So I think that this is a metaphor of what's going on with the disciples. It's like Jesus can try his best to heal, but sometimes it doesn't take. And that's not Jesus' fault. It's because you, because of the hardness of your heart. It doesn't say the hardness of the heart of the blind man, but I think the situation is parallel. You can't see, so sometimes Jesus has to work on you twice. Which may correspond to the temptation of Moses in the wilderness. Moses doubted God for no cause at the waters of Meribah. But the Lord has showered abundance on the children of Moses 
with no cause, and they even doubt his generosity, so he has to do it twice. It's very interesting, because two also in the Old Testament is technical. It's a technical number because you always have two to bear witness. So Jesus is bringing a witness against them of his father's generosity, which again, I think, leads up to this discussion of the cross, because once you pour generosity upon the people and you bring a witness against them with these doublets, what comes next? It's the question of where your heart is and what the consequences are for someone who gives their heart over to the kingdom of the heavens. Right, and this is exactly where in the next scene Peter gets into trouble because this is where Jesus has the famous discussion with the disciples, who do they say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And he says, great. And then he says, he's going to be crucified. And he says, no, 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 he rebukes him. Peter rebukes Jesus. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, why does this fit in this context? Or how does this fit in this context? Well, the people, the disciples, were not clear about how this whole abundance thing works. Well, how do we know we're going to have enough next time, Jesus? Are we sure? Because I understand we had two times out of nothing, but you know, there's no guarantee we're going to have a third miracle here. Jesus, the way you're talking, you're going to have a short lifespan. We need to go speak to a financial advisor. <laughs> it would make a lot more sense than just feeding 5,000 here and then fighting 5,000 there because what happens we end up in a wilderness and there's not enough? This is the fear. We're not going to have enough. And so Jesus is trying to get the people to see his gospel, which is there's going to be plenty there's going to be plenty. It's fine. You've got what you need. He's trying to convince them of this. And Jesus says, oh, and by the way, you know, I'm going to be crucified. Well, then Peter's like, oh, well, I don't know if that's really a good idea. You can imagine in this context, Jesus has been trying to convince them that the Father is going to provide no matter what the circumstances, even if you're out in the desert with no food. So why, if Jesus is going to be crucified, would he doubt that God is going to provide for him? Exactly. This is the test of faith, essentially. This is precisely the test of faith that Peter does not have. Right. Peter failed the test of faith because even seeing the loaves in the wilderness, even after Jesus berates them, even after seeing the blind man cured, he still is like, I don't know if that's a good idea. You think, I can't see anything good coming of that, Jesus. I can't see anything good coming from you're being crucified. And the response implicitly from this chapter is, God provides. There's always a provision. And so if one is willing to be crucified, there's still a provision that God can provide for you. But that seems impossible. Well, of course it's impossible. So is feeding 5,000 people off of five loaves or two loaves. But this really contextualizes this beautiful, beautiful phrase, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world but lose his life, forfeit his soul? What's interesting is that ultimately in the gospel, what God has provided, as we learn in Genesis, where God did not create humanity, where God created life of which the human being is a part. It is God who provides life. And in what reality would you sacrifice the gift of life for temporal gain, for temporal security? Well, and there's a practical side too. I agree completely, Father. You know, someone is obsessed about gaining wealth because they doubt that there's going to be enough coming up. Rather than taking what they need for today, they have to store up for the next four generations so that what happens if something down the line, if they don't have it, or what happens if, you know, I need, uh, if something happens to my mansion, I need a second mansion. You know, they've lost their soul because they have no trust in God's provision. They have to provide for themselves. They have to be making deals with idols rather than accepting what God gives them. 
Well, and the brilliance of the cross as metaphor in the gospel is that everyone dies. Death is 100% in the hands of God. I mean, in the sense that no matter how you try to stave off death or prepare for death or try to plan around death, sooner or later, death comes to everyone. It's unavoidable. And so your rush to find security and to gather wealth is futile and pointless when you know that your life is coming to an end. And no matter what you save or gather, it will eventually be squandered or spread among the peoples and will not benefit you or even your children at some point. So why not instead accept that your life is in God's hands? I mean, this is what it's about. It's about accepting that you can't control life and death. You can't control it. It belongs to God. And the best metaphor for that you have no control over life and death is when you pick up your cross because your life has already been determined. It's over. You're convicted. Someone else decided your life is now over. You accept the judgment and you walk according to God's instruction, which is what Jesus did. It's very important. And I always talk about this on Lazarus Saturday when I preach. Because everybody comes to church on Lazarus Saturday because they want to feel validated that everything's going to be okay and that there is a resurrection and they'll be fine and they'll be in heaven with their family. All of these sort of popular notions of what Mm -hmm. life and resurrection mean. But the single most important fact on Lazarus Saturday is that Jesus Christ himself did not know anything for certain, but he placed all of his trust in God. That's the difference. Faith does not mean I know it's going to be fine. Faith means I have no idea, but I'm going to place my trust that even though I'm hungry, even though I'm thirsty, even though I'm abandoned, even though I feel threatened by someone else, even though my back is to the wall at the edge of the Red Sea, I'm going to stand back and put my trust in the Lord and let him fight on my behalf. That is the ultimate question. And when you take the stand, that you're going to stand back and be still and silent and let God fight for you, something very important happens. You no longer contribute to suffering in the world. You no longer contribute to exploitation and abuse, even though you might be taken advantage of. And so whether or not you realize the benefit of that trust for yourself is secondary how your trust in God benefits the community according to God's will. The trust in God removes the fear that you're not going to have what you need. And so therefore, you don't have to contribute to suffering to others. You don't have to be withholding from others. You don't have to be excluding others. There's always, you're always able to give because the, the, the final decision is up to God anyway. What you're given is just God's. And the only thing you're going to be judged on is whether then you're contributing to what other people need. If you're going to be offering up to others what was given to you for no reason, this is what we're going to be judged on. Are we willing to give what was given to us freely? This is often presented as an irrational point of view. People talk about Christianity being irrational. And it is irrational because it goes against human reason. It's a kind of a counter logic. However, what the gospel is ultimately saying is that since you're going to die anyways, why not die in a way that bears witness to something that does not die, that comes from the one who is the source of life? 
Since you're going to die anyways, why not die correctly? And this is a very rational point of view. Because this is what the gospel means when Jesus says, Why would you give up your life? Isn't your life more than stuff? What does your life mean after you're gone? What was the purpose of your life? What did you stand for? Do you stand for yourself and for your own gain? Or do you stand with all the saints who, as Basil says, from all the ages have borne witness to the teaching of the prophets? Exactly. That's what it means to pick up your cross in order to follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus unless you're picking up your cross. Unless you've accepted that God's providence lies on the other side of our death, we don't know. God has given us life. God will take life as he sees fit. And on that basis, then, we can begin to follow Jesus and what he is trying to teach, which is that you don't need to worry about tomorrow. It's just today, acting correctly today, and giving freely what you receive freely. You have to spend it in Scripture before you lose it. All right, thanks very much. Take care. Thank you, Father. See you. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.